morning. It's good to be together. Well, this morning I'm super excited because we are starting something new in the Word of God that will take us for five months, even a little over five months. So uh, someone this morning, we were praying, one of our elders said, maybe we should all have seatbelts on. <laughs> and I think that's very appropriate because uh, God has good, good things for us. But think about that question with me. How do you measure success in your life? Seems like a simple question, pretty straightforward. And, um, you know, we could maybe arrive at some quick answers, but if you really think about it and all the messages that are coming your ways about what success could look like or should look like, and, and we're bombarded with messages about what to measure, what to look for. And I think it, that question gets at the root of a human desire for happiness. We all desire that. And I think that's a good desire that God has put in every person who he created. There's this desire for happiness. And so there's many messages about there about what is success and how do you measure it. But this series is going to talk about what God say, says is success and what he measures. And so... We're going we're gonna to be diving deep into this uh, series, which is going to go through Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And uh, the Gospels contain uh, the message of Jesus in, in four different ways, through four different writers, four different authors. And each one is really special. We believe the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we believe the Holy Spirit gave uh, these gospels to us so that we can know God, know Christ and his purpose for our lives. Um, only the gospel of Matthew and Luke contain what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. So it's possible Jesus preached this many times over the course of his three years of, of, of preaching and, and speaking. And so we're going to focus on the Gospel of Matthew, but we will look at some of the other Gospels over the course of this series. But one of the things we're doing on Wednesday nights is um, teaching how do you read the Bible? How do you study the Bible? Because we believe God has given us the Scriptures and it's accessible to every single person. Um, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. You don't have to just hear it through me or others that God has given you access to His words and to His presence. But one of the things we want to teach is how, how do you read it? How do you study it? And one of the things we're doing is going through the inductive study method where you observe and you interpret and you apply. And each of those steps is so important. And so this morning as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, I want to pause and make some observations and look at the context, which is an important part of interpreting. How do you understand meaning and, and understand what's being said is understanding the context. So we're gonna back up to the very first verse of Matthew where it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that tells us something about this gospel. It tells us something that will inform how we interpret the Sermon on the Mount. It tells us that this is a gospel about a person, Jesus. <laughs> But it also tells us that this is a story that began long ago. And we, when we read the Bible, find lots of genealogies and we tend to just read through them quickly, right? But it's important. 
And one of the things I want you to think about as we go through the Sermon on the Mount are two words that are critical for understanding meaning because these are context words that the genealogy brings to light. The first word is covenant. The second word is blessing. Covenant and blessing. So what do we mean by covenant? Well, covenant is a word that we found throughout scripture from the very beginning and it literally means a promise. It's God's promise. So when we talk about covenant in the Bible, we're talking about God making a promise. In Genesis, all the way at the very beginning, in the first chapters of the Bible, we're told that God makes a covenant, a promise to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he, and he makes a, a covenant with Adam and Eve, a promise. And then we are also seeing a blessing because as God makes promises, he promises the bless. And this informs how God makes covenants. He doesn't make them solely based on what we do, right? Like if you do a contract with someone to buy a house, there's, there's responsibilities on both parties. But God makes promises based on who he is. And what does God do? He blesses. So when we read the genealogy, the first word that shows up is Abraham. Abraham. If you go back into Genesis, you learn that God made a covenant with Abraham, a promise. He said, I choose you out of all the peoples of the earth and through you I'm gonna bring what? Blessing to all people. So right away when we read Abraham, what do we think of? Covenant, blessing, God making those things. And throughout the genealogy, we're reminded that what? God keeps his promise and he blesses. He keeps his promise and he blesses. But at the very end of this genealogy, where does it end? With Jesus, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is the Messiah. And so what is this telling us about the context? That Jesus is the covenant, that he is the blessing, the fulfillment. And as you go through, one of the observations you'll make in Matthew is this word fulfill, fulfillment. And you can circle it over and over and over the book. And so what is being said? That God is a covenant-making God. He's a promise-keeping God. He is a God of blessing. And he is blessing. And he's keeping his promise through the person of Jesus Christ. So this changes how we read the Sermon on the Mount. It's important. And then we get to Matthew chapter four after we're told that Jesus, uh, about his birth, we're told about his uh, running away to Egypt, we're told about his return to Nazareth, we're told about John the Baptist who's baptizing, we're told Jesus is baptized, and then we're told Jesus is tested in the wilderness, and then he begins his ministry. In verse 17 of chapter four, we're told what the message of Jesus is. And this isn't just in Matthew. Every gospel records this message that Jesus preached. This is important. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so if we're gonna understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand the message of Jesus, which was a message of the kingdom and a message of repentance. We're gonna talk about both those words, but let's talk about kingdom because kingdom's one of those words that we don't use in everyday language. I don't talk about kingdom every day, but a substitute word that we do use and we do think about is government. So when you see that word kingdom, it's really talking about government. Whose government? God's 
government. Heaven is a representation of God's realm. So this is God's government. So his rule, his reign, his will, his action. When we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about God's reign, his rule, his will, and his action. That's important. This is not a new message. In fact, this is as old of a message as God has been a covenant-making God, as God has been a God of blessing from the very beginning of Genesis. We're told the good news of God's reign, his sovereignty, his rule, his reign, his will, his action over all things. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament continually reminded people of this reality of God's government of his kingdom in Isaiah 52 therefore my people will know my name and therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it yes it is I how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news and what is this good news to proclaim peace who bring good tidings who proclaim salvation and all of this is possible why because your God reigns do you hear that the message of the kingdom of God is not a new message Every Jew who would have heard Jesus preach the message of kingdom would have known what he was talking about because it was the longing of every heart. And I believe not just Jewish heart. I believe every person who's ever born has this longing for the rule and the reign of God because we long for order. We long for justice. We long for happiness. We long for peace. We long for salvation. We long for what is good. Do we not? Don't we wake up every day and long for that? Even if we can't put our words to it, there's a deep ache in our hearts for this. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think that psalmist outlines the longing of every human heart, which is ultimately for God because we were created by him. We were created for him, for his delight and our delight and our joy. And when he is our portion, we have everything. Did you hear what this pastor from Uganda said in that video when God was, was stirring in him for this great need? And he says, I don't have any money. But he learned and he said, but I have God. And because I have God, I have everything. This is the kingdom of God. This is the will of God. This is the action of God in the human heart. But we hear the message of Jesus and we say if that's not if, if that's good news but but what's the new news what is Jesus saying that is different repentance was not a new idea it's a changing of thoughts it's a changing of action there's always been a call to repentance throughout the biblical story what is new the message that it has come near it's at hand in some translations it says it is breaking out it's at hand it's near what is Jesus saying? He's saying the rule, the reign, the will, the action of God, the government of God is happening now. It's breaking out. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm it. I'm here. I am here. And because I am here, the kingdom is here. It is near. Jesus becomes the message. That is so important. If we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand the message of Jesus and what he is saying. 
I'm going to use a couple of illustrations. Um, illustrations are dangerous because sometimes they don't always help us, but I'm hoping this will help us. But how many of you have a, a smartphone? A few smartphones out there? Okay. How many of you remember life before smartphones? <laughs> okay. I, I was thinking about that this week, and, and you almost forget because you, you get so reliant on it. You, but, but I used to drive, and I had a map that I had to pull out, like this big map, and hold it on the steering wheel. Remember that? I used to carry around a planner book that where I have to write down, you know, what I was going to do and my calendar right there. I used to actually have to carry books around. <laughs> and now I have all my books right here. So a smartphone, and we can, we can talk about the good and the bad that, it, it, that has happened, but think about it. We had to repent of our old ways before a smartphone. We had to change our thinking and our behavior. And then we began to realize that this is powerful. In fact, our, our whole order of living has changed. And if you think about it, our whole economy has changed because of the smartphone. Because now people buy stuff online. They do stuff online. Everything's done remotely. And so everything has changed. How we communicate, how we live, how we do so much. Think about this even further back. My wife's grandfather, who since passed away, he was born in 1911. And uh, before he passed away, I, I would love just sitting down with him and talking to him. He had so much life experience. And he had been a farmer. And he farmed before uh, there were tractors. So he had horses and he had plows. And, and uh, he lived just like people had lived for, you know, thousands of years on this planet. And then one day, electricity came. And so before electricity, he had to go out and cut the ice out of the lakes. And that's how they stored food. And they had to do everything by hand, manually. And then electricity came. And his generation had to repent. They had to think differently. They had to act differently because electricity came. And think about the power of that and the change that that brought to his life and a whole generation. And think about why we have smartphones, right? So... Think about the transformation, the effect that these things had. And we can argue if they're good or bad because there's, there's both on those things. But this is an illustration. This is an illustration that when something comes near, the power that has in our lives. And so when Jesus is saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, he's saying, your life is not going to be the same. <laughs> Things are going to change drastically and dramatically in your life because of me. And so Jesus comes and he proclaims this message. And so then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the, this is the, 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 the teaching of introducing what kind of change he's going to bring to us, to humanity. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. And this is where we're going to stay today. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. And he sat down. Now, if we're going to understand why are there crowds, we have to look at the preceding verses. In verses 23 through 25, we're told that Jesus not only preached the message of the kingdom, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And what else was he doing? He was healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. 
You see, Jesus stepped into the brokenness of our world. The reality of sickness, of pain, of, of harm that's happened in people's lives. Jesus was deeply aware and cared about people's needs. He cared about people's needs and he had power to change that for them. He had power to heal, to restore, to make new. And that's important. But the Bible continually refers to these miracles, these things that Jesus was doing as signs, as signs. Now, the miracles explain why there's crowds, right? If you're sick and you're hurting and you're seeing healing in your life and other people's lives, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna be there, right? You're gonna wanna be there. And so people wanted to see Jesus. But these are called signs for a reason. Now, in the back here, there's a sign called an exit sign on our back door. Now, what if we put an exit sign right here on the wall and it was just a wall, but we had a nice exit sign? That would be kind of foolish, right? Because if there's a fire in here and you run towards that sign and you run into that wall, (laughs) uh, you're in trouble, right? That sign has a purpose. The reason we put a sign there is because there's a door. The point is the door because we want to get you through the door so that you can be safe and saved. So Jesus is doing miracles. He's doing signs because he's pointing to something that will ultimately bring salvation. Now, I I believe with all my heart that God heals. He is a healing, restoring God. That's why Jesus came. But the reality in this life, we can be healed once, but one day we will die. We will all face death. And so Jesus is pointing to something even more profound than just our physical healing. He's pointing to our salvation. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins to set up for us what is the signs pointing to. This is important. We need to pay attention. And that's why crowds are coming to him. The other thing I want to observe here is where does Jesus go? He goes up on a mountainside. A mountainside. Think back with me. Covenant. Blessing. Where in the Bible do we see a mountain with God's promise, his covenant, and his blessing? Mount Sinai. The people of Israel called out of Egypt and there they are in the desert. And who goes up on the mountain? Moses. And the people don't want to go up, right? Because they're like, that looks dangerous up there. There's fire and there's lightning and thunder and, and we're scared. So Moses, you go up to the mountain. And so Moses went up the mountain and what did he bring back? The law. He brought back God's words, God's covenant, and his promise of blessing to the people. And so what do we see here with Jesus? Remember that key word, fulfill, fulfillment? We see Jesus on the mountainside again, and he sits down. So we believe here the reason Jesus is bringing us the Sermon on the Mount is because he wants us to know that he is fulfilling what God has promised to bring blessing. Jesus is bringing fulfillment to what God has promised to bring blessing. Then we have to ask another question. Who is this written to? Who is Jesus speaking to? Who is Jesus speaking to? Two observations. In verse one, he says his disciples came to him. And then it says he began to teach his disciples came to him. Now throughout the Gospels, there's an interesting parallel of things happening. There's two groups. There's the crowd, and then there's the disciples. 
Every gospel outlines this, this tension, this distinction. So we need to think about this. What is the difference between the crowd and the disciples? The, the crowd, they're, they're interested in Jesus. They're kind of like the people at Mount Sinai who said, we, we need God, we're interested in what he can give us, but we just don't want to get too close. And Jesus always had a crowd around him as he did these miracles. There was a lot of people interested in Jesus and they were even interested in some of the benefits like that bread that he multiplied, free meals. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be there, right? And so people are interested in Jesus, but there's distance. They don't want to get too close because it might require commitment. It might require something dangerous. But what about the disciples? Remember when Jesus called the disciples, they were doing other things. They had their lives. They had their business. They had everything going for them in their different realms or different things they did. But Jesus came along and what did he say? Come, follow me. And what did they do? It says they put aside whatever they were doing. Matthew, who wrote what we're reading here today, was a, a tax collector. He had a, a booth where he would change money and, and take money and, and I'm sure it was a very successful business that he had. But it says when he encountered Jesus, what did he do? He left his table behind. He stopped being a tax collector and he began to follow Jesus. So what do we learn about what it means to be a disciple? It's someone who's willing to go all in with Jesus. Disciple literally means a learner, an apprentice. And it's a person who not only only hears what Jesus says, but they actually get close to him and begins to live with him, to live life with him. And so the disciples literally began to live with Jesus and began to put in practice the things that Jesus said. They were willing to be transformed. They were willing to be changed. They were willing to give up every aspect of their former life and join the mission and the purpose of Jesus. And not only that, they were willing to go to the cross. In fact, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross and follow me. Unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me. This is about commitment. This is about sacrifice. This is about giving up something for something better. Because the disciples of Jesus found not only they had to face the cross, they also got to experience the resurrection. And so as we go through this sermon on the mount, the question that every single one of us will have to grapple with is are we part of the crowd or are we disciples? And I'm gonna be honest with you. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, some of this teaching is gonna be offensive. You're not going to be happy with what Jesus is saying. It's going to be uncomfortable. Even I am going to be offended, uncomfortable with the things that Jesus is going to ask of us. And so we have to grapple with that question. Are we in the crowd or are we disciples? So to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand the why, that Jesus is fulfillment. He is fulfilling what God has promised, what God has said he will do to bring blessing. We have to understand who is he talking to. He is talking to disciples. And then third, we have to understand what is Jesus saying. And this is where we have to understand what Jesus preached, the immediacy, the nearness of the kingdom of God. What I believe Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is for now, for today. 
That eternal life in Jesus is not just for when we die and go to heaven. It's for right now. So the things that Jesus are, are teaching us are meant to be lived out right now in our lives because the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is near. He's with us. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, as we understand the context and how to, to interpret this, we come to the reality of the call of Jesus on our lives. And we see here that in verse two, he began to teach them and he said, he said, that's important. God is a speaking God. Jesus is known as the word of God. So God has always spoken and he's speaking even now today. He's speaking to every heart, every human being. In fact, in Romans chapter one, it says, no one is without excuse. Why? Because God is a speaking God. How does God speak? He speaks through creation. So all of your experience in life as you look out at the trees and the rivers and the animals and everything that is made in the skies, you hear God speaking to you. God is speaking. He's calling out that he exists, that he is present, that he is near, that he has created all things. Amen. It is awesome. God is a speaking God. But he's also speaking through the Holy Spirit to each of our hearts. And so we believe that God is a speaking God and he's speaking to us through his word. As Jesus speaks these words to us in our life. So here's the question. Will we listen? I've been married uh, almost 15 years now and sometimes my wife says things to me and I say, yeah, uh-huh, but I'm not really listening. <laughs> and how, how do I know, or how does my wife know? Because I don't do what she asked. <laughs> if she said, go take out the garbage, say, uh-huh, and then I don't do it, was I really listening? No. And so listening is connected with our actions, right? And we're told at the very end of the sermon, Jesus gave a powerful illustration. He said, a wise person hears my words and puts them in practice. And he said, that's a person who builds their house on a rock. And so when the wind and the waves and the storms of life come through, that house is firm. It's not moved. It stands. But the person who does not listen and does not put into practice what I say is like a man who builds a house on the sand and when the wind and the waves and the storm comes, that house is washed away. And so the key there is what? Listening. <laughs> Listening to the word of Jesus. I want to list, read Romans 12, verses 1 through 2 for you this morning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so if you listen to God, you understand who God is, how he's revealed, how he's spoken to you. You understand as we go through the Sermon on the Mount that God has done everything for you, that you are declared righteous. There is no condemnation that Jesus has made a way that he is our righteousness. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that we see this through the lens of what Jesus has done for us. 
that he has made a way that we are not earning our salvation in any way. We have the mercy, the grace of God. But because of that, we respond in worship. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the repentance. This is the change of thinking, the changing of action. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will, remember God's kingdom, his, his rule, his reign, his will, his action, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you believe God wants the best for you? He's good. <laughs> and the Bible tells us he's a promise-making God and his promise is one of goodness. It's one of blessing. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we, as we listen to what Jesus says, we realize that the work of God is a transforming work. It's a changing work. He is, he is changing the way we think, what we do. I want to read the words of Dallas Willard as he talks about this. Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. He came very gently and he opened access to the governance of God with him. And he set afoot a conspiracy of freedom and truth among human beings. Having overcome death, he remains among us. By relying on his word and presence, we are enabled to reintegrate the little realm that makes up our life into the infinite rule of God. What I, what I love about what Jesus proclaimed about the kingdom of God for the Jews they thought that the kingdom was just about them, but it was so much bigger. And, and the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the will of God, the action of God was for all people. The blessing of God was for all people. And a lot of times we see our little lives, but, but God has us being part of something infinite. And that is the eternal kind of life, caught up in his active rule. Our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. They are what God and we do together, making us part of his life and him part of ours. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to realize this eternal life, this salvation that we have in Jesus results in a new kind of living, a new kind of thinking, a new kind of life that will transform us and all things. I have two applications that I want to bring to you today. If the call here is to listen, I know for me personally that I forget things really easily. And so one of the ways I wanna listen to the words of Jesus and I wanna invite you to do this with me is I found memorizing forces me to reflect deeply and not just one time but over and over and over. And so what I would like to ask you to do with me is to memorize the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now you might be saying, Ben, you don't know me, I'm not a good memorizer. And I will tell you, I'm not a good memorizer either. But I think with listening, there comes an intentionality of saying, I'm going to reflect deeply on this, I'm going to think about this, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout my day. And we're going to go slow through this. We're going to spend eight weeks just on the, 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 the statements of blessing. So every week, you're going to have time to think about this. And, and I believe God's going to do something amazing through this because as you're in your car on your commute or you're at work or you're with your kids, you're at home, and you're thinking about this, you're thinking about blessed are the poor in spirit, and you start thinking about how that applies to your life, God's going to do 
amazing things in you and through your life. And so I would like to invite you to memorize in order that we might listen well to what Jesus is saying so that we can be like those people who build our lives on the rock. And the second application is a, is a harder application. Memorizing is an easy thing compared to this. Yet, though this is hard, this is the key to the whole Sermon on the Mount. You have to decide if you're going to be part of the crowd or if you're going to become a disciple. And by become, a disciple isn't something you do. It's not a program you join. It's not even a church you join. A disciple is about being. Being with Jesus. Choosing Jesus over everything else. And it's by being that we become something new. Now, I say this is hard because Jesus called his disciples and he said, this isn't an emotional response. He said, count the cost. He said, if you're going to go build something, you're going to figure out the cost because <laughs> it's going to cost you something. But Jesus said, it's worth it. This is by and far well worth it. In fact, he said, it's like a treasure. He said, the kingdom of God is like a treasure. Being a disciple is a treasure beyond infinite worth and value. But there's a cost. For the first century disciples who followed Jesus, the very first ones, what did it cost them? It cost them being rejected. It cost them their popularity. It cost them um, their comfort. It meant they were beaten. They were thrown in prison. And they ultimately, many of them were put to death for it. There was a cost. And I don't know what the cost will be for you or for me. But there will be a cost. And so committing to be a disciple is not something you take lightly. It's something you take seriously. But I believe it's worth it. We just sang this morning, he is worthy. <laughs> he is worthy. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we have reflected on your words this morning, we're reminded of who you are, that you are the Son of God, the Messiah, that you are the creator of the universe, and you are the one who came to bring blessing, to restore, to bring life, to bring hope, to bring salvation, to bring freedom. And Lord, I believe and I just feel in my heart deeply this morning that you love every person here. Help them to know they're loved. But God, you call all of us to this new kind of life, this new kind of living that doesn't jive with the world's way. It doesn't jive with the culture around us. And because of that, there's a cost. So I just pray for each person as they reflect and they consider being a disciple and what that means that God you would speak to them that you would give them peace and joy and comfort as they weigh the cost I ask this in Jesus name